Matthew chapter 27. I want to begin reading in verse number 33. And I'm going to read this slow. I'm going to read it slow because I think we often read it fast. And I think it would pay us to read this slow and to consider what's being laid before our eyes and our ears. Verse number 33 says, And when they were come unto a place called Golgotha, that is to say, a place of a skull, they gave him vinegar to drink, mingled with gall. When he had tasted thereof, he would not drink. And they crucified him, and parted his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet. They parted my garments among them, and upon my vesture did they cast lots. And sitting down, they watched him there. And they set up over his head his accusation written, This is Jesus, King of the Jews. Then were there two thieves crucified with him, one on the right hand and another on the left. And they passed by, they that passed by reviled him, wagging their heads, and saying, Thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, save thyself. If thou be the Son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise also the chief priests, mocking him with the scribes and elders, said, He saved others. Himself he cannot save. If he be the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross, and we will believe him. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now, if he will have him. For he said, I am the Son of God. The thieves also, which were crucified with him, cast the same in his teeth. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land unto the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is to say, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Some of them that stood there when they heard that said, This man calleth for Elias. And straightway one of them ran and took a sponge and filled it with vinegar and put it on a reed, and gave him to drink. The rest said, Let be, let us see whether Elias will come to save him. Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. Let's pray together this morning. Heavenly Father, help us treat your word with reverence this morning, Lord. Help us to lay open our hearts before you. Help us, Father, to be willing to see both the horror and the beauty of Calvary. Father, I would pray this morning that as we examine Your Word and examine ourselves in light of it, Father, that You'd make real to us the reality of what You did for us on Calvary. Lord, may it challenge us. May it change us. God, may it command and beseech and beckon us to a closer and more fervent walk with You. Father, it could be there's one amongst us, and Lord, only you know the hearts. But in a group this size, it would not be surprising to know that there's one amongst us, that if their heart was truly searched, and if they were to be honest before you, they'd have to admit that they don't know whether they're saved or not. They don't know your Son is their Savior. Father, I pray that this morning that Christ would be set evidently before them crucified. 
And Father, that they'd see the hope there is in Calvary. Now, Father, we've asked these things because we believe them to be Your will. Father, we're asking You to accomplish them in a way that would bring only You glory. Father, I pray that You give me the unction and the power in the preaching. Father, that You may get the glory. Father, help me as a yielded vessel to stand, that men may not see me, but see only Christ and Him crucified. I love You, Lord. I don't love You like I ought to, and I fail You often, but I do love You, Lord, and You know my heart. Now, Father, teach all of us to love You in a greater way. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Isaiah 53 and verse 4 says, Surely He hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem Him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon Him, and with His stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. I want to preach to you on a simple thought this morning. And I want to be a little bit methodical this morning. Probably more so than I normally am. But I want to preach to you on the thought this morning. He hath borne our griefs. I'm going to tell you what I believe about this, neighbor, and you don't have to believe this if you don't want to. But I believe that Christ paid for our sin not in hell, but on Calvary. I believe He bore our hell, but I don't believe He bore it in hell. I believe He bore it on Calvary. As we study the Word of God, we do find that He descended into the lower parts of the earth and He led captivity captive. He ascended on high and gave gifts unto men. And the Bible teaches explicitly that Christ has the keys of death and of hell. But I don't believe that Christ paid for our sin in hell. I believe He paid for our hell on Calvary. And the Bible tells me that all of my iniquities, but not only my sins and iniquities, but my punishment, My griefs, my sorrows were laid upon the eternal shoulders of the Son of God as He died on Calvary. And so with that in mind, I want us to just read a few verses. And I want to give you four things that I see that Christ bore for me on Calvary. Do you know that He bore it for you? He bore our griefs, our sorrows, our sins, our iniquities. You say, he bore the next man's. Yes, he did, but he bore yours too. And if you'd been the only man, he would have borne yours and yours alone if you were the only man that there was, the only woman that there was. He bore your sins on Calvary. He bore them that you might not have to. We've read in Matthew chapter 27, I I have no doubt that probably the majority of the people in this room have, have read that passage before. And you've probably read it slow, you've probably read it fast, you've probably read it paying attention, and you've probably read it just glancing over it. But I'm sure that you have walked uh, that road many times with our Savior. I'm sure you have sojourned up to Calvary's hill, and in your mind's eye, you have seen Him evidently set forth and crucified before you. I'm sure you've had preachers stand up and paint you a picture of the sorrow and angst of the dying Savior. I'm sure you've had preachers sit there and paint for you the pain that He bore and the humiliation that He bore. But I want us this morning to look at some of the things that He bore and I want us to look at how those were our things. They were our stripes. They were our nails. 
it was our cross. As we've read in Matthew chapter 27, we have just a little hint. I want you to look at it in verse number 34. Uh, In John chapter 19, it's said explicitly that one of the seven cries from the Savior upon the cross was he cried out. And he said this, he said, I thirst. You've read that many times, I know. Now, Matthew does not record for us that cry, but he does record for us some of the hints at it. In verse 34, the Bible says they gave him vinegar to drink mingled with gall, and when he had tasted thereof, he would not drink. Verse number uh, 48 tells us, And straightway one of them ran and took a sponge and filled it with vinegar and put it on a reed and gave him to drink. The Bible teaches us that as Christ died upon the cross, that He got very parched, that He was thirsting literally to death. The design of uh, crucifixion was not that a man would thirst to death, but rather that he would suffocate to death uh, through his arms being dislocated and the pressure upon his lungs. Many times their lungs would have collapsed through the vicious beating that they would have endured. But the Bible teaches us that as the Son of God hung on the cross, that He cried out and He did not say, I hungry. He did not say, I am weary. But He cried out and He said, I thirst. Isn't that interesting this morning? I'm sure that uh, probably there was hunger pains in the stomach of the Son of God, but he did not say, I'm hungry. I'm sure after being up all night, after having been beaten, after having been bruised and spit upon and buffeted and nailed to a cross, I'm sure he was weary, but he did not say, I'm weary. I'm sure that fatigue was sitting into his body, but he did not say that. One singular phrase he used concerning his need on the cross... And he said, I thirst. Can I say to you that that thirst belonged to you and me? Now you say, preacher, I I don't know what you mean by that. I I don't understand what you mean when you say that thirst belonged to me. Well, I'm going to give this uh, to you this way. We have four different punishments that were meted out upon the Son of God, upon the cross of Calvary. And I believe there are four areas that hell holds for the punishment of those that die without Christ. And can I say that whenever Christ cried out and said, I thirst, He was exhibiting that He bore the physical punishment of hell. Can I say that there is a physical punishment or a sensational punishment in hell? Turn with me to Luke chapter number 16. Turn to Luke chapter 16. Probably one of the more famous passages upon the topic of hell. The Bible tells us that Christ told this story. And by the way, it is not a parable. I say that just about every time I preach on Luke chapter 16 because there's many that would have us to believe that it is a parable. But it is not a parable. When the Son of God said there was a beggar named Lazarus, I believe there was a beggar named Lazarus. I believe there was a man that literally exists. You say, he didn't give the rich man's name. No, he didn't, but he did give Lazarus's. And if Lazarus was a real man, then the rich man had to have been a real man because they correlated and corresponded one to another. Listen carefully to what the rich man says in Luke chapter number 16. Listen to what it says in verse uh, number uh, 23. The Bible says, and in hell he, speaking of the rich man, lift up his eyes being in, now underscore this word, torments, and seeth Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. Do you know that there's some that teach that hell is merely a state of non-existence? 
Seventh-day Adventists teach uh, the heretical doctrine of uh, total annihilation. You won't find that in the Word of God. The Word of God teaches that uh, a soul will exist eternally somewhere. It will exist either eternally in the lake of fire or eternally with the Lord. One of the two. Those are the only two options. And the notion of total annihilation is completely false. There's some that believe in what we might call a soul sleep. That when a man dies, he does not immediately go to his eternal destination of judgment or his eternal destination of bliss and of paradise, but that he slips into a state of unconsciousness. But the Bible does not teach that to be so. The Bible says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. The Bible says about the rich man immediately after he pillowed his head in death that he lift up his eyes being in torments. But that word torments is interesting to me because it denotes an angst and an anguish that the rich man was experiencing. You say, well, that's a psychological angst. Well, there is that, but I believe it was a physical angst in a sense. You know why, Ralph? Because he said, send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water to cool my tongue. Think about everything the rich man was experiencing. Think about the heat that he was experiencing. You ever been burnt before? Any of you ever got burnt? Some of you men better raise your hand. If you ever worked on a lawnmower before, I know that muffler's got you at one time or another. Amen. And you've been burnt before. If you get burnt real good, if you get burnt good enough, you don't feel anything at all. It sears the nerves. But, but a good burn, sometimes it'll throb. Do you know what I'm talking about? It just throbs. It's not the kind of burn that you get just from maybe holding a, a match or a lighter to your hand for just a moment. But it is a deep, throbbing burning. And isn't it interesting that the rich man did not say, I ache? It could have been that he was hungry. I, I do not know. The Bible teaches that with our glorified bodies, we can eat, though we will not go get hungry. But I tend to believe that hunger is part of the experience of hell, never being satisfied. He did not say, I'm hungry. He said, I'm thirsting. Dip the tip of your finger in water to cool my tongue. Now, let me just boil it down very simply to you. You say, preacher, what are you driving at? Are you saying that the worst part about hell is that you can't get a drink of water? No, that's not what I'm saying. But I want to read another verse to you that I believe will put things in alignment. John chapter 4 and verse number 13, Christ is speaking to the woman at the well. And listen to what he says. Jesus answered and said unto her, Whosoever drinketh of this water, now he's speaking about physical water. He says, Whosoever shall drink of this water shall thirst again. Oh, I like this, but whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. Could I say simply this? Christ bore the physical punishment of hell. What is the physical punishment of hell? It's a deprivation of comfort and satisfaction. Do you realize that there's never a moment of comfort in hell? In fact, uh, Abraham, speaking to the rich man, said that thou in thy lifetime receiveth thy good things, but now thou art tormented. Lazarus, he's comforted, but he said, rich man, you're tormented. Never before, never again will a moment of comfort come to the sinner that has died without Jesus Christ. Never again will there be a soul-satisfying moment. Never again will they find what they need within the torments of hell. You said, preacher, they'll pay for their sin. No, they won't pay for their sin because they'll be there eternally. Christ died on the cross. Why did He say, I thirst? Let me just put it this way. Christ said, I thirst so that I would never have to thirst. 
Christ said, I thirst. He bore, and we could go down the line of all the angst and physical torment that Christ did experience. But I believe it summed up the physical element of it in this uh, simple phrase, just two words, I thirst. What was He saying? There's an unending dissatisfaction. There's a lack of satisfaction. There's a lack of comfort. There's a lack of what I need in this place. And He bore that for you and me. Do you know that we don't have to say that? We can accept Christ as our personal. You say, I'll preach. You say a Christian never gets thirsty. He don't ever get thirsty for the spiritual water. He's satisfied. Can I say something to you this morning? I'm satisfied with Jesus Christ. I'm not still searching for something. I found it as a ten-year-old boy, as a ten-year-old boy that knelt in his bedroom and called on the Son of God. He gave me a drink of something that I've never needed a second dose of. It's been good, and it's still good. So I'll preach. Are you saying you don't want more of God? Of course I want more of God. But I don't need more of the Holy Ghost. I need Him to have more of me. But I don't need more of Him. I've got all of Him there is to give. He gave me a drink of the uh, living water. That's the Holy Ghost. You know, the Bible says explicitly in John chapter number 7 that Christ spoke of living water. And John gave a little parenthetical statement when he said, This spake he of the Holy Ghost, which was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. The living waters. And now, neighbor, we don't just have a touch from the Holy Ghost. We have the indwelling of the Holy Ghost thanks to Calvary. It's a well of water in us, springing up into everlasting life. Hey, I'm not looking for a drink. I've got the source. And that source isn't of me. But that source has been put in me through the miraculous procedure of God when the Spirit of God at Calvary, uh, when I came as a sinner to Jesus Christ and called on the name of Jesus Christ and put my faith in Him, He gave me a reservoir and a resource. I never have to thirst again. I never have to worry. Hey, listen, throughout eternity, I don't have to worry about discomfort. I don't have to worry about dissatisfaction. Even in my everyday experience of life. In my everyday experience of life, sure, there's things I'd love to have. There's things I'd love to need. I mean, hey, here in just a few moments, we're all going to start feeling hungry. Amen? Some of you all looking nervous. What did he mean by that? <laughs> When's he going to let us out of here? <laughs> But uh, at the end of the day... I, sure, I have needs. Sure, I have wants. Sure, I have things that I desire. But there's coming a day when I will no longer need or desire anything. I'll have everything that I'll need. And the reason for that is because Christ bore it on Calvary. He paid that sin. He suffered the physical punishment of hell that I wouldn't have to suffer. I won't have to spend a moment in hell. I couldn't go to hell if I wanted to been saved by the grace of God. You say, preacher, you saying everyone's going to heaven? No, you know me better than that. What I'm saying is once you've accepted Christ as your personal Savior, there's nothing you could do to go to hell if you wanted to. If you wanted to. He bore the physical punishment of hell. I want you to notice with me, uh, look again in Matthew chapter 27, look at verse number 45. The Bible says, now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land under the ninth hour. Can I say that Christ bore the physical punishment of hell for us? But can I say that part of hell is also a psychological punishment? Do you know there's something about darkness? Now, I know some of you big, strong men, you're going to say the darkness don't bother me. You wait till you're going down that back alley and you see a shadow emerge in front of you. Tell me your heart don't flutter. There's something about darkness. I mean, I, I, hopefully you don't sleep with a nightlight, but that's none of my business, amen. But, but there's something about darkness. It's the fear of the unknown. 
It's not knowing what's ahead. And there's always been an, an inherent fear within man of darkness. In fact, you'll find phrases in the Word of God like the horror of darkness. And you'll find that whenever uh, people are uh, sent uh, damned to hell and sent to hell, that the Bible speaks of it as outer darkness. I believe that hell is a dark place. And I believe that is part of the psychological torment. Could you imagine being in a place where there was never any light? Being in a place where you could never see anything, left only to your imagination, to the screams and torments of those around you. That's a horrifying notion. The Bible teaches us that for three solid hours, our Lord bore the darkness. God pulled the shade and the drape in around the greater light, the sun. He blacked out the lesser light, the moon, and over all the countless multitudes of stars, innumerable to the human heart and mind, He pulled the shade closed and He shut every glimmer of darkness, of light out into total darkness around the Son of God. I believe there's a lot of reasons why He did that. I personally believe it was during this time that Christ was particularly being spiritually judged for our sin. But as He pulled the darkness in around Him, Christ bore that for you and me. Now you see, neighbor, you and I, were born deserving hell. You don't do anything to deserve hell. You deserve hell because of who you are. You're born a sinner. The Bible teaches that clearly, that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The Bible says that death passed upon all men in that all have sinned. And the Bible says there's none righteous, no, not one. That darkness belonged to you, and that darkness belonged to me. And can I say to you, sinner, if you were to die without Christ, you'll spend an eternity, not just in the physical torment, but in the psychological torment of hell. I don't know what we could liken it to. I can use my imagination, Brother Ralph. Ever woke up from a terrible nightmare before? Ever had that happen? I don't know about you. Maybe you've never had a bad dream. <laughs> Old Norman Vincent Peale. Any of y'all remember him? I think that's what finally killed him. He had a negative thought. <laughs> that did him in. Had a bad dream. But I kind of liken it to that sensation and that feeling. You wake up and you're disoriented. You're not sure where you are. You're not sure what's going on. Could you imagine spending an eternity in that state? A state of disorientation, disarray. A state of non-awareness of what's taking place around you, aware only of the screams and torment. Christ bore that for you and for me. Now you know what the Bible says about us? I like this. The Bible says in the book of Ephesians that we're children of light. Do you know that the uh, Bible teaches that Christ is the light of the world? And we can know that light and we can walk in that light. What is light in essence? I mean, we could have a big, long scientific answer. But in the practicality of the matter, what does light mean? Light means awareness. Why do we turn on the light? We turn on the light so we're aware of what's around us. Not in darkness. Not in secrecy. Not in fear. The Bible teaches that you and I have been brought into the true light of Jesus Christ. We no longer walk in darkness, but now we walk in the light. We can walk in the light because He bore our darkness. He bore the... Hey, listen, the Bible says, uh, casting all your care upon Him for He careth for you. 
The Bible says that we're to with thanksgiving to make our requests known unto God. Let your supplications be known unto God, and the peace of God which passeth all understanding shall keep your hearts and minds. I, I, I know, I, I understand, there's people that have gone through things and experienced things that caused them some psychological torment and difficulty. And I know that's an experience of life, and that's something that people face. But can I give you a little encouragement? Can I say, it don't matter how big your nightmares are, you have a Savior, if you've been born again, that can give you a peace which passeth all understanding. That's how God works. God can supersede your frontal cortex, neighbor. God can give you a peace that's unspeakable, that's unknowable outside of Jesus Christ. If you have accepted Christ as your Savior, then you have the comforter of the Holy Ghost dwelling within you. And the peace of God can keep your hearts and minds through Jesus Christ. We have that comfort and that assurance through Him. The Bible speaks of a day. Well, I'll just read it to you. Listen to what it says. In Revelation chapter 21. Now this speaks of the new Jerusalem. It speaks of the day when we dwell with God. And the Bible says, And the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon to shine in it. For the glory of God did lighten it. And the Lamb is the light thereof. And the nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of it. The kings of the earth do bring their glory and honor into it. And the gates of it shall not be shut at all by day. For there is no night there. The Bible describes eternity as one eternal day. No longer any fear. No longer any anxiety or angst. But a day of eternal peace with God Almighty. You juxtapose that compared to what the lost man will experience with an eternity in torment in the lake of fire. And you see very readily what it is Christ did for us on Calvary. He didn't have to do that. I feel like I'm losing you. Is everybody okay? Everybody, let's, let's all look up here and, and, and just shake your head till it rattles. Amen. We'll be all right. Hey, it ought to bother us if we can talk about Calvary and that don't do something deep inside. He didn't have to do that for you. He didn't have to do that for you. He would have been just as much God if he had never went to the cross. The cross did not deify him. But the cross humiliated him. The cross did not deify him. But the cross brought us the second birth. The cross did not deify Him. But the cross was where the Son of God and the Son of Man became sin for you and became sin for me. He bore our darkness. He bore the psychological effect of, of, of hell and the effect of sin. Can I give you a third thing? I believe that He bore the emotional punishment of hell. Do you know there is an emotional punishment? Uh, it's, uh, there's some that believe that all of our senses are eradicated and we're just existing in hell. But I don't believe that because the Bible teaches clearly in Luke chapter 16 that we still have our senses, we still have our uh, whereabouts, or if we might use this term, we still have our wits about us in a sense. We're still aware when we're in hell. And you know something that the rich man said, and this always interested me, Ralph, as he was burning in torment and in pain in hell, he said, I have five brethren. You know what he felt? He felt sorrow. He felt guilt. He felt worry. He felt loneliness. I think often about the loneliness that our Savior must have experienced on the cross. We very rarely think about it. But our Savior experienced the loneliness. The book of Matthew chapter 26, uh, he was speaking to his disciples and he said, All ye shall be offended this night. For my sake. And it shall be fulfilled which is written, the shepherd was smitten. 
and the sheep have scattered. There in the Garden of Gethsemane, whenever the Son of God allowed Himself to be taken into custody, the Bible teaches that all the disciples fled. They all left. Peter followed afar off, John just a little bit closer. And by the way, let me just give you this, it isn't part of the message, but do you know every time you see John, time and time again, he's pictured as leaning upon the chest of the Savior? Hey, if you stay close to him during the good times, you'll stay close to him during the tough times. When the time came that the Son of God was being persecuted, John stayed a little closer than everyone else. What did Peter do? Peter was one of these that had his own opinion about everything. And when it came time to follow, he followed afar off. You follow him afar off in your daily walk when it's easy. You'll follow him afar off when it gets tough. They all forsook him. And when we come to John chapter number 19, the scene that is set before us at the cross. Now, picture the multitudes just a year or a year and a half earlier that have been following him. It was so many that at the feeding of the 5,000, it was not just 5,000. 5,000 was the number of men that were present. And usually in that time period, if a man was there, most of the time that would denote a family being there too. And some estimates put it as high as something near 20,000 people they fed that day with just that little boy's lunch. Multitudes would throng and press upon him. Multitudes that followed him. But the closer he got to the cross, the thinner the crowds got. The closer you get to the cross, the thinner the crowd will get around you. And he gets to the cross and the Bible says, this ought to be a testimony to what a godly woman can be and should be. The Bible teaches that only the women and John the Beloved were left at the foot of the cross. He looked at John and he said, Behold thy mother. He didn't even feel that kinship to his own mother there. He was alone upon the cross. He was numbered with the transgressors. Could you imagine the loneliness it was up there? as he sat there or hung there suspended between heaven and earth, there the way to heaven in betwixt the two places. And no man, it seemed, cared for his soul. Do you know that's the, that's the mind-crushing loneliness that the sinner will experience in hell? We don't fathom this very often. I know... Music writers and songwriters in Hollywood tell us that it's going to be a big party. Have you read what the Bible says about hell? How would you like to have a murderer for your neighbor? Today we have websites set up so you can go online just to find out and make sure you don't have neighbors like that. But the Bible teaches that it will only be liars and adulterers and murderers. How would you feel to have a murderer... How would you feel to have a pedophile living next door, or a rapist, or a murderer, or a thief, or a liar living next? That's the only company that you've got. You say, oh no, preacher, i got friends that are going there. You don't have any friends there. There's weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. What do you reckon they're gnashing on? It's a place of utter loneliness and despair. Utter loneliness. Let me ask you something. You think the rich man was the only person in hell at the time that he died and went there? I don't believe that. We don't read of him having any companions. Just him. I think it pictures the soul-crushing loneliness. There's nothing worse than being lonely. 
Is that true? Doesn't it hurt to be lonely? It hurts to be lonely. People make poor decisions in life. Uh, they they, they uh, date the wrong person, marry the wrong person, or, or allow things in their life they shouldn't just to avoid loneliness. Because it's such a difficult thing to cope with. And yet the Son of God hung in loneliness on the cross. Do you know why He did that? He did that so that me and you might not have to experience that loneliness. I mean, for one, we have the abiding of the Holy Ghost in our hearts, the indwelling of God amongst us. He's our God and we're His people. But even beyond that, we know that those that die in the Lord, there is a reunion day coming. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 says that the Lord Himself shall descend from heaven. The shout! The voice of the archangel, the trump of God. The Bible says, we shall be caught up, don't miss this little word, together. Together. We shall be caught up together with them in the air. Together. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. We. How many of y'all have lost a loved one within the past three years? Boy, look at that. I'm not going to ask you if they knew the Lord or not. You don't know that, but we have assumptions whether they did or not. But can I say that if, if, if they knew the Lord, death has parted you only for a short while. You've not lost that person. You know where they're at. It's not lost unless you don't know where it is. You've not lost that person. Separated for a short while, for a short period. Why is that? What gives us the hope? Christ bore our loneliness that we might not have to bear it. He walked that road alone. They had to pull a total stranger out of the crowd. Hey, what a shame, neighbor. They had to pull a total stranger out of the crowd to bear his cross. Where was Philip? Where was Peter? Where was Matthew? They'd all forsook him. Only Simon the Cyrenian, a sojourning man, they pulled him out so that he could bear the cross. He bore that loneliness. Let me give you a final thing. There's only one time in the Word of God that Christ calls God God in addressing Him. And I believe that Christ bore the physical punishment of hell for you and me. And I believe He bore the psychological punishment of hell for you and me. I believe He bore the emotional punishment of hell for you and me. Brother Gary, I believe He bore the spiritual punishment of hell for you and me. What's the worst part about hell? The worst part about hell is a lack of fellowship with Almighty God. A lack of fellowship. He cried out and he said, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? People in an irreverent way use the term God forsaken a lot. But could I say it very descriptively in saying that hell is a place where the sinner has been God forsaken. God will not be there to help him. There is a place where your prayers will do no good. 
there's a whole religion built on praying for people that are in that place. It's folly and futility. Folly and futility. Because the Bible teaches that that's a place where there is no help and where there is no hope. Christ's relationship with His Father was severed. God was still His Creator. But for that brief moment, in a spiritual sense, Christ was not His Son. You say, oh, He's always... Yeah, I understand. I understand. But you can't tell me that there wasn't a breaking of that relationship at that moment. Why? Because you and I deserve that. But you know what the Bible says? The Bible says, Beloved... Oh, I like that word, beloved. I, I, I'm not going to do it to you, but I can preach a whole other sermon just right now on that word, beloved. Beloved, now are we the sons of God. Let me say it again. I don't think we got it. Beloved, now are we, we that were hell-bound, we that were sinful, we that were unrighteous, we that are undeserving, we that were destined for eternal damnation, we are the sons of God. Think about that. Ephesians says we're accepted in the Beloved. Why? We're accepted because He was rejected. We have fellowship because He bore our sin and sorrow. That's the most horrific part of hell. Literally, the weight of the sins of untold numbers known only to God. Only God knows. We can have our senses uh, year after year after year, but there's no way of knowing how many people literally have drawn a breath in this world. Only God knows, but God knowing that number, having that tally fixed, laid upon the Son of God, the sins and punishment and eternal damnation of all mankind for all eternity. You want to know how righteous He was? It took Him three hours to pay for it. Laid it upon His shoulders. The relationship severed, cut off. He asked a question. I've always been interested in divine questions because it's not asked for the... Christ, didn't, Christ already knew. It wasn't asked for Him, it was asked for you and me. And let me close with this thought. Why hast thou forsaken me? Can I say that the relationship was severed for you and for me? Listen, you may be here today... And I'm sure you, I'd say there's probably not a person in here that hadn't heard this, the gospel story at least once. You may have heard it and heard it and heard it. You may have been saturated with it. But if you've never seen that as your cross and your punishment, oh, you may be bad, but you're better than the next guy, am I right? No, until you see yourself as a sin, as a hell-deserving sinner in need of Christ's salvation, you'll never come to the Savior. You'll play church, you'll play religion, you'll join them, you'll quit them. But you'll never get saved until you see yourself as a sinner. Because until you see yourself as a sinner, you don't really believe you need to be saved. Why? 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 He bore it for you, and He bore it for me. He bore it for your loved one that you're concerned about. He bore it for that child or grandchild that cousin, that aunt, that 
uncle, that mother, that father, that brother, that sister, that co-worker, that neighbor. He bore it for them. And He bore it for you. So I wonder today, if you're here without Christ, would you be willing to trade your unrighteousness for His righteousness? God makes a pretty good offer for us. He says, I'll take you as you are, Ralph, if you'll take me as I am. And all you've got to do is take that worthless, hell-bound self of yours and trade it in for the righteous robe of Jesus Christ. His righteousness, not your own. And He's willing to save you today. I wonder what would keep you from it. I wonder what would be worth dying and going to hell. I don't believe there's anything. So today, before it's everlasting too late, why don't you come to the Savior? Let Him save you eternally. He'll do it. He loves you.